Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. On this episode, we're speaking with Rachel Murphy, who is a public speaker, health tech advisor, and CEO of the digital service company, Different. Rachel has quite the history with the NHS, and since leaving the organization, she has brought her passion for user needs, service design, and actual delivery together for clients across several industries. Welcome. I'm interested in your origin story how you ended up where you are doing what you're doing how you your route to health tech or otherwise where did you come from so, <laughs> a, planet? Pla- a planet far far <laughs> away um so where did i come from well when i left school i knew that i was not going to go to uni uh, mainly because i knew i'd get pissed and not get a degree. And I remember relaying that to my dad, who was like, thank Christ, I didn't want to pay for that degree because I knew you were going to get pissed and not get a degree. And I was like, result, we're all happy then, aren't we? So um, I had a very brief foray into sales, but I... Uh, if I go, if I go slightly further back, really. So I was born in Congleton in Cheshire, and um, we moved down south when I was ten. So my accent is all over the place, mm. mainly because I've worked uh, a lot across the UK, but also um, did a stint in Canada, uh, in the US, uh, in Germany, and in Holland. So yeah, I've kind of been around for want of a uh, less professional phrase. Yeah, but but my kind of journey into health tech, I started out in IT, did a couple of different projects, public and private, uh, and kind of traveled with those. So I was in uh, Amsterdam when I was 19, uh, which was um, lively. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I actually have no comprehension of how I remained employed for KPMG during that year. I probably did my best not to remain employed as well, but uh, it was uh, it was a great crack. Yeah, I get a feeling you're a bit like me. You're a bit surprised you're still alive. I, I, I was shell shocked, mate, by 35 that I was still mm. alive, and and that mm. I think was probably what prompted me to uh, to actually get sober uh, mm. because um, I was like, you know, I you've absolutely kicked the ass out of it. And and the thing for me is I always burn the candle at both. So I work really, really, really hard, um, but mm. I play equally as hard. Uh, that really was the kind of decision, I guess, around sobering up at 35. My journey for healthcare was my stepdaughter got sick uh, when she was 14 with meningococcal septicemia. Uh, and Charlotte ended up in hospital for a 12-month period. Wow. So she had uh, six months in ITU, wow. which is almost unheard of. So she she was out at um, uh, Alton Towers. Alton Towers, yeah. Yeah, so she was out at Alton Towers with my best mate, actually, and um, they they were staying over. We were out of the country, uh, and we got a phone call saying she's really unwell, been rushed to hospital. Uh, so we hopped uh, on a flight home, and it kind of went, you know, downhill quite rapidly. The hospital, uh, I think it was North Staffs, might have been Mid Staffs. Anyway, they they rang us, and they were like, I mean, I'll never forget this phone call, but they literally called and said, she's in ITU. We were back in the UK by then. And it's a 50-50 uh, as to whether she will be alive by the time you get to the hospital. Mm. And my, uh, my ex, uh, her mum, was a nurse. And so she, you know, she, she knew I didn't know, mm. but she said they never phone and give stats like that unless it's pretty much, you know, 
jobs done. Uh, so the only time they will say that is when, you know, the serious urgency to get there. Yeah. So we we drove, my, my middle brother drove us from London to Stoke-on-Trent, uh, about 120 mile an hour, picking up speeding tickets the whole way. Um, actually, he subsequently used that excuse for many years, <laughs> but but that's a that's a side point. <laughs> but um, we and and then that started a very long process, really, of Charlotte being in various ITUs. Mm-hmm. So we were in Stoke for a while, uh, and then she was in Chelmsford in Broomfield at the Burns Unit because of the damage of the septicemia. Mm. Uh, and then she was Great Ormond Street and in total about 12 months in hospital. Uh, was in kidney failure at that point as well because your organs shut, shut down with septicemia. Uh, is a triple amputee uh, as a result. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of, you know, the stuff of absolute nightmares. But, you know, Charlotte is still with us, uh, incredibly lively, ludicrously resilient. Uh, and uh, mm. I think that's probably why uh, why she's still with us actually but um mm. it, it was that uh situation i think that really was a turning point for me so i'd done a lot of public and a lot of private until then but i was blown away i i was i mean i, I couldn't set foot in a hospital for a long time after she came out but but i was blown away by what the nhs uh, had done why couldn't you set foot just because of like the trauma of it. I, Sorry, I think so. A, a podcast turned into a therapy session, but it's interesting to know like what motivates people, why people mm. are what they are and, you know. Yeah, I think uh, it was the smell of a hospital and it was that noise, you know, of alarms, um, that mm. noise of alarms in Things a hospital. And, yeah. Uh, I could not deal with that at all. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, that was just horrific. And of course, yeah. she's been in and out of hospital. You know, that, that hasn't changed uh, over the years. Yeah. But uh, Charlotte's Charlotte's care was in the millions. Um, you know, we had 24 consultants round the clock looking after her when she first went into ITU. Mm. Uh, and it will be, you know, in excess of millions and millions of pounds. Mm. And, and I guess for me, wanting to repay some of that in some shape, way or form was what drove me to move towards uh, healthcare after she mm-hmm. got sick. So my first role after that really would have been, well, there was a couple of roles, but but then I was into nursing and midwifery council. So led their kind of uh, patient facing transformation. Yeah. That's where I met you the first time. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. do. So that, I and do. that would have been 10 years ago. Huh? more memorable than I thought. <laughs> Oh, I, I, def- I no, I definitely remember you. You know why I remember you, Kevin? Because I'd lay money on the fact you were hungover and you were feeling desperate in the meeting. You reckon? No, no, I'm absolutely adamant, mate. I mean, I'd put money on it. So, I mean, I don't want to. You know, I'm often kind of a bit spaced out. No, no, no. You, you, no, you said. Uh, you said to me. You said to me before the meeting. <laughs> Oh, did I? That's yeah. so. That's so, Kevin. Yeah, You're very honest. That's oh, a good okay. thing. I'm detecting a theme. I'm. <laughs> we'll have a separate talk, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. We did a podcast with Joe McDonald, and he, um, I met him years ago, but he doesn't remember. <laughs> I, I, I definitely remember. Yeah, I remember we were getting out because um, Simon Wardley introduced me to you. The map man. The, the legend of mapping. Yeah, the legend of mapping. Yeah, you uh, see, I, I don't remember it coming through from Simon, but I remember, I distinctly remember meeting you because I remember which meeting room we were even in. So, uh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You, ma- you made more of an impression than you thought, mate. 
Yeah, I'm quite a weirdo, I suppose. But I remember coming into the room and you had this, this, this. You'd done it properly, and I, I think I had some scraps of paper, which um, where I hadn't done it properly. It was literally in my like weird old notebook, and I, I probably did it on the train on the way there. And I was like, what is the what is the terrain of of this world I exist in, and you know how does it look compared to my competitors, and what what game are they playing? And so we we were mapping at that time. We were mapping the uh, the architecture of NMC because we were looking at what we were going to hold on to, what we invested in, and what we retired. Mm. So we were using that as an internal piece uh, from a from an IT perspective. So yeah, I do. I remember fondly the Wardley maps over the years. Mm. Yeah. Brought, brought a lot of people together. I think he's it, there's something of him himself in mapping community, and uh, you know he's like uh, way of looking at business in the world. You know when, when you sort of see him on Twitter, he, he talks technically and he talks about serverless and stuff like that. But I think there's also like an element of why you should be doing things, or you know, is a sort of principled theme running through it. And I think you know attracts attracts other people that have got that kind of mentality. I think it does. And I think I think the other bit is the uh you know creative by commons. So by opening up what is built and not trying to retain it, you naturally create a community that also want to give back yeah. and work together and develop. And and so yes, I agree. I mean I've I've heard the the Woodley mappers described in positive and negative terms. But uh, for, for me I've always found the community incredibly positive. Yeah. It's a cult with tweed jackets. I think it's that. I think it's probably that word, mate, that uh, that, that has upset some over the years. But uh, oh, okay. I mean, I, I don't. I don't mind a good cult, so uh, count me in. Oh, it's just the contraction of culture, right? That's no bad thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was it. Was the NMC was the first sort of route into health tech because you were CTO there, right? You don't just immediately go in the CTO. No, I started out really. So I did uh, some local authority. Sorry, maybe I should go back here because I'm jumping around. Mm-hmm. So you, you had this sort of instant. <laughs> yeah, where did you, how did you get that route into NMC? I'm no Joe Rogan, am I? <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> so I... I started out project managing. So um, having had a year in sales, I despaired of the fact that when I sold something, it wasn't implemented properly. So I wanted to do both. And my sales director at the time let me do that for a brief period. Then I decided it was the delivery side where my heart really was. So I went on, did a lot of different projects, uh, public sector, private, worked for three of the big five, which I rarely talk about publicly, but but it gave me a, a great grounding into I guess learning my learning my trade for want of a, a better mm. phrase uh, and and then I did a couple of interesting roles so I ran the services business for Kelway IT services company I ran the services business for Kia the big construction company uh, and then I went and did department for education so that was my first CIO role uh, in central government and that was working for uh, Michael Gove uh, and it was an interesting period of time. So first CIO role, but also um, first time in a central government department, you know, 50 million pound budget mm. working into Gove. He's quite lively. Um, so uh, so it was uh, it was a good learning curve. But I, I struggled a bit with the politics um, from a central government perspective and the hierarchy uh, blew me blew me away and not necessarily in a good way. You know, people introduce themselves as like, I'm a grade six right. or you'll need to talk to my deputy director. And I'm like, wow, I was just hoping for a convo. Uh, so, you know, some of those bits I found quite unusual, but, but also I guess you get to make a difference on a scale 
that is way larger in the public sector than in, in the private. And it was that probably that hauled me back in to do a second rolling government. So after DfE, I did a piece for National Archives, part of Ministry of Justice. And then I decided I was talking to one of the NEDs at National Archives and they said, um, you know, nursing and midwifery is, is having a mare. And um, would you like to go over and, and, and help out? And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting gig, to be fair, because, you know, a heavily old school organisation, not a government department, but you could be forgiven for thinking it was, you know, wood panelled offices. Right. And there was a lot that needed to be done. So, um, you know, we, we initially kind of transformed out the IT function. This is going back a few years now, but span them out into cloud services uh, and then started to digitise their proposition. So revalidation was coming down the road and there was huge objection to digitising anything. There was a feeling that their customer base would not be up for it at all. Uh, but we we got revalidation uh, digitalised. We got nearly a million nurses and midwives on the on the register from a digital perspective and it, it landed brilliantly and they've kind of really mm. gone from, you know, gone on from there. Uh, but what I realised at NMC was the, the regulation bit was interesting, uh, but I wanted to be closer to the action. Uh, And I came out of NMC, did 18 months there, CTO, and then led their business transformation. But I I wanted to go closer into into the NHS and was offered a program of work around something called Empower the Person, which was about everything patient-facing, which is as massive as it sounds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was truly the transformation of patient-facing services. So, you know, we we built things like the NHS.UK, the front door into, digital front door into the NHS. We created the ability to book appointments, to access your medical records, to register with a GP. And it was a fabulous, fabulous program working with an exceptional team. And, you know, I was arranging a get together with this team last night uh, for, for later this year and all of us haven't been back together for a few years and mm. it's it's quite bizarre to, in taking a step back probably 90% of my senior team on that programme of work are now entrepreneurs selling back into healthcare why do, you feel, why do you think that is? people feel like they can do more from the outside I'd like to think it's me mate but yeah. um, I, yeah. I suspect it probably isn't There's def- the reason they're out of the system is they feel they can make more impact outside Yeah, that's how I feel and I mm. I just imagine that's how you felt. That, that's definitely how I felt when I came out, 200%. But as to, to how so many are entrepreneurs, I don't know the answer to that. But I'll find out on the 25th of November, I'll let you know. Yeah. Uh, I, intend, I intend to ask around. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was an exceptional team. We were... You know, I was working with Juliet Bauer, who's now over at Livy. Adam, who is um, is running Hippo. Tony Yates from a VIX perspective. So, you know, just, just the absolute dream team. We had Janet Hughes came mm. in and built the strategy. You know, it was an absolutely exceptional team of people. Mm. And we, we, we did the impossible. You know, we got those services out the door. We built out NHS.UK. We moved it to open source. Uh, it had previously been a proprietary uh, CMS. And that that opened the door to to being able to access 
digital services across the across the NHS. And it was not all, you know, bed of roses. Of course, you know, you're working in an mm. organization that, you know, if, if you drive change and you deliver stuff, then, you know, people want to throw rocks at you. Not literally, but, um, mm. you know, it, it, it was tricky, but we, we achieved an awful lot. I'm, I'm very proud of my time there. What sort of rocks? Refer- no, not specifics, but what? Why, why do you I'm no geologist, mate, so I can be specific. I think... What's the tension there? Is it like someone making progress and making everyone else look bad? or I think it's not? a couple of things. So we were part of the Paperless 2020 programme, so over $4 billion allocated. There were various levels of success in the other programs. So there's an element of that. But but I think in my personal view, there's something a little institutional uh, around uh, civil service and around healthcare, especially at the centre, which is, you know, if you are absolutely flying, uh, then there is, there's definitely noise. You know, there's noise and there's drama. And, you know, you may have noticed, but my personality normally requires quite a lot of top cover. So I will get the job done, but it won't be... Um, it won't be noiseless. And so, you know, that mm. the, the noise ramped up more and more over that period of time. But I, I think I think that's part of the system. Um, in, in my personal opinion, I haven't worked permanently in the system, but I've spent enough time in it as an interim and around it, selling into it in the last four years. I'm speechless. <laughs> That never happened. No, that never happened. I mean, I'm sure you've never heard any similar stories before, mate. No, well, you are a bit of an enigma. I don't, you know, I think one of one of the reasons that sort of you were a magnetic personality to me. I don't, I don't know why. Like, just sorry, Twitter and sort of chatting. Sometimes you're just going through life. You sort of see someone who's a bit of a kindred spirit. But you, you, um, you seem to have a bit of a kind of rebellious nature, and you, you, you're somebody who's been in senior positions in the NHS tech community, you know, not necessarily NHS, but in the health tech community. And I think there is a tendency to sort of play it safe, right? I mean, the path of progress often in these organizations is to be kind of risk averse. And it's, it is unusual to see somebody who who is quite rebellious. Like um, I call us like weird fish because we're, we're animals in a, an environment that really doesn't suit yes, us. Yes, I would agree. Well, you stay there anyway. And you're like, fish aren't supposed to have legs. And it, it, you, you just stay in this water. like, <laughs> And, and it's, it's a harder existence, I think, because, you, because it doesn't necessarily reward those behaviours. It doesn't, but I think what it does is the personal reward for making a difference. So um, in, my, in, my, in my view, um, you know, it was heavy lifting. We had cracking top cover. You know, I had an SRO in Juliet Bauer who'd come from the private sector who wasn't familiar with the ways and workings of healthcare. Uh, initially, um, but you know, fast learner picked it up. But you know, we we were absolutely there to deliver, mm. and and that was un, unequivocal. And so, you know, the stuff that we were pointing at, we made it happen. Uh, and I guess the the bit for me is, I have always done that. Um, you know, do I do it by the book? Absolutely not. Um, you know, do we have some fun along the way? Is it a good laugh? Um, and, and would people talk about it in various ways for the next decade? I bloody hope so. Um, yeah. So for me, that stuff is super important, as important as what we deliver, uh, because we are all at work for far too many friggin' hours. So if we're not having some fun and, you know, building relationships along the way, then we're all doing it wrong, yeah. in my personal view. Yeah, you can see those sort of relationships. I think Livy, the company Livy, 
just bought Tony Yates's company as well. So it's like it's like this old school. I know. I, I could, I'm, I'm waiting for a job offer, mate. I mean, I said, <laughs> why have I been excluded? No one's extended <laughs> a bloody offer. You know those kids uh, like they come out of school and they got like the t-shirt, the class of such and such, and it's got all their names on the back. I feel like you guys should have one of them. <laughs> I, I feel like I might rig it up actually for the twenty fifth. <laughs> yeah, old, old old school domain name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then. Where next from there? Yeah, that's what Where I wanted you... to ask. So after the NHS, I built the company that I couldn't find while I was working in the system. So there was lots of talk about various organizations that could help. Um, but I, I didn't feel that I'd, uh, I, I had found quite what I was looking for. And so that was the motivation really on building different. Uh, and different was about... Uh, making a difference. Uh, it was about tech for good. It is about allowing people to truly be themselves. Uh, and it's about delivering outcomes for clients that are exceptional, but it's absolutely about having some fun along the way. You know, I often describe the business as a dysfunctional family, uh, and that's the most appropriate description. And that makes for a tricky working environment as well for for that reason, but also it makes for a super fulfilling one. Mm. And a year ago, I sold different to Panoply, uh, and I'm working through that process at the minute. Uh, and, um, you know, it, I guess it's bigger and better. We're going after uh, larger outcomes. As a larger entity, we're able to uh, go up against the big four, the big five, um, and, and really make more of a difference and, and more of an impact. Yeah. Was was Be Different an existing company? I seem to... So when I came into it, it was a recruitment company. Um, but I, yeah, that's what... yeah, I had no desire to run a recruitment company. So um, pretty much overnight, we what we did was build out a proper delivery business. So we hired permanent people in and we started taking responsibility and taking the risk for those, uh, for those outcomes. Yeah. But I'm just confused. How does it go from suddenly... I'm so... I didn't really mean to start a business myself, so I'm I'm not <laughs> not sure I've got great business acumen. But how do you buy a recruitment company and then overnight turn it into something completely different? So we didn't. I didn't buy it. What I did was I pitched to the current owner. His ten percent. Oh, okay. His ten percent margin business could be thirty percent margin if he gave me 50% of it and we'd realised that in five years. So that was my pitch to him, uh, and. Um, he was like, happy days, rock up um, and, and get going. So we had cash in the bank. We had a trade and history. We had a name. We, we deliberately did a piece of work in way of uh, understanding, you know, the brand and building out that brand pop, uh, proposition. And, and we settled on the name different and then we took it to market. But we, you know, we went out initially after private sector work and uh, we did that really to bankroll some of the activity in the first Six months, uh, we delivered good outcomes for the private sector, but we knew it was user-centered design and delivery that we wanted to do. So we knew we were heading towards the public sector. Well, we had to refine that proposition sufficiently until it landed. And our, our first mm. client was was NHS BSA. Three years on, we're, we're still doing some work with them. Oh, yeah. So tell me about that project. Is that the NHS job project? That was the first one off the bat. 
Wow, that's a that's a big yeah. that's a big one to land straight off. Well, it was a uh, 140k discovery uh, three years ago, but yes, mm. it was a it was a, a big one to land, and and we've built a brilliant relationship with BSA over the last three years. So we've done number of projects. You know, we did overseas health, we did a big strategy piece for them, mm. and three years on, we're we're still working with them. So we've we've obviously done a done a good job, but the. Yeah, the platform around jobs is is about reimagining a platform that has been in play for a long time, but redesigning it with you know the user in mind and bringing mm. in kind of functionality uh, and uh, technology. What does it do in essence? What's the what's the basis of it? It's about hiring. So if I say track, which makes me swear, uh, being an honorary contractor at Oxley's, that bloody system <laughs> was was awful to use. Is it similar to that? Is it, is Re- it a... replaces the need for? Right. Okay. So it replaces the need for, and the platform allows for all hiring into the NHS. So a hospital porter through to a brain surgeon doesn't matter who you are, what role, uh, but it also allows for a level of management reporting that we haven't been able to see holistically across the NHS around vacancies. Yeah, it's a superb platform. At the minute, we've got five and a half thousand NHS organisations using it. During the remainder of this calendar year, we'll put the rest on. So we're in a private beta right now. Right. So the vision is that NHS jobs will be running all of the recruitment across the NHS. Yeah. The NHS. Oh, interesting. That has interesting implications for our capacity planning stuff, our job planning, team job planning. Obviously, our product suite is kind of over workforce and um, workforce management, but don't really kind of get involved in that, the actual recruitment side. But clearly, Mm -hmm. there are gaps in delivery where it's it's obvious you need to recruit someone into a certain role. So as that rolls out, we're going to see more of sort of putting those jobs automatically onto the absolutely. PSA system? Is that the- Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the, the jobs platform is used for permanent hiring. Um, so bank staff aren't currently catered for from a BSA perspective. Well, I don't know whether there's appetite to, to explore that. If if I was CEO of BSA, I would have appetite to to reduce the mm-hmm. expenditure. But but that's a yeah. conversation for another day. Um, but but in way of jobs, I guess you could liken it to you know the army recruitment platform that you know was was built out by by Capita. So there's been a, a reasonable expenditure from BSA, so probably 10 mil over the last three years in way mm. of the platform, but they own that asset. Mm. Uh, and yeah. it's it's up, it's working, it's recruiting, and it's negating the need for trust, CCGs, doctor surgeries to have their own uh, recruitment platform. Yeah. So net position, you know, huge, huge savings. But also, you know, we're out exploring, taking that as a platform, um, and reselling that NHS asset internationally. So that's something that yep. we're looking at at the minute. Oh, cool. So a trust that, that has, you know, a trust that's using track, for example, at the moment, if this is provided by BSA, is that a paid for service? Sorry, I'm so green and naive to this. No, thing. no, no. So, 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 do BSA sell that as a service to no, the trust? And then no, the trust they don't. Come along and- so it's available to them. So um, there's functionality that we've been building out as part of the private beta um, around the reporting side. Um, and, and that's why they haven't yet gone live into a public live service because we're just finishing some final bits and pieces off. But at that point, uh, it will absolutely be able to uh, to replace the need for track. Um, I think Oxley's, which is where I've got an honorary contract, you know, who co-founded 
sod with me. I think that, well, when I got an honorary contract with them, I had to go through through the track system, but presumably they, they pay for that. And that's the, that's the problem. So you're saying in the future, when it comes out of private beta and it goes yeah. into to public beta, then at that point, they'll be able to free of charge because it's applied by the BSA to switch, yeah. switch to that system and, yeah. and life will be easier. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and to us who are sort of system suppliers of rostering and workforce and job planning, capacity planning, is that something that we can then connect up to and say, hey, there's, there's a gap here? And Yeah, the intention is, intention is open APIs into uh, for, from for that going forward. I mean, the specific roadmap, you'd need to talk to BSA. You know, the last time yeah. I was on the ground at BSA was two and a half years ago. Uh, but but in way of what we're doing and, and where we're doing it, yeah. But our big push in this calendar year is get it live into a public. So where, where from here, you, you had quite a uh, COVID, you were quite involved in the COVID response. We you? did a lot of work in uh, COVID. So we helped out uh, NHS sets. We built the home testing service for COVID-19 and we have and continued to do work around volunteering, but we also uh, helped out with mobilising the team for 111 overflow. Mm. So bringing GPs back out of retirement. Uh, so we've done a lot in the COVID space over the last 18 months. Yeah. The home testing service, is that the one with the lateral flow things or no, the home testing home testing was before lateral flows were in play here. Uh, mm. So if you go all the way back, that was at the point where we had probably 40% of key workers who were at home isolating because we couldn't get anybody tested. So it was before testing was kind of standard practice. Um, yeah. And we built this out with, uh, with Randox um, and AWS. So we built that service over a really short period. So probably eight days, we actually built the service, put it out there, uh, and um, we worked with London Ambulance uh, and we got their teams tested as part of that pilot. Then we put the service live and, and key workers were then um, able to um, apply for a test to be sent out, uh, get tested, uh, send it back, then get back to work. It's amazing how much, how quickly a lot of this stuff emerged. I mean, fantastic work from yourselves, but there's just all, all things like the coronavirus dashboard. I, I don't think um, necessarily the UK public appreciates just how good some of our kind of like GDS services are and, oh, I agree. and, and things like NHS digital. And there's a real um, pedigree of people who are really good at public sector tech in the UK. And it's only when you go outside and try and use something similar in another country, you, you see how awful. <laughs> <laughs> I to totally agree. Um, and, and we, you know, we wouldn't have been uh, spinning a service up and putting it live in eight days had the heavy lifting not been done by GDS 10 years before, you know, from a notify perspective, um, yeah. but also, you know, the, the standards work from an NHSD without, you know, it was literally everything was reusable. Um, you know, yeah. I make it sound as though I was coding here, which, you know, um, I clearly was not because the service worked, uh, <laughs> but 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 it, it, it was substantially more accessible than it would have been. Do you code? Are you a geek? No. I mean, am I a geek? I think there's a I think there's a geek bit there. Yeah. I yeah. tried to try to play that down actually, mate. But no, I, I don't code because I think mm. that would require me to actually sit at a terminal for a period of time. That's a good point. That's not that's a non starter for me, really, Kevin. <laughs> what, what have you learned being in the health tech space? What what things did you assume to be true 
when you started that weren't? So when I first came into health, I assumed that the NHS was one big organization. Um, and yeah. that was a massive misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and within about an hour of landing, I thought, shite, um, that is not the case. So I, I heard a brilliant analogy years ago from a chap called Stephen Critchlow, who is the CEO of Evergreen. And he said the NHS is a big shoal of fish. Um, and I, you know, I think I'd likened it previously to like a, you know, a big whale or something. He was like, you know, if we're going on that kind of aquarium style theme, um, I thought it was one massive entity. And and then I realized it wasn't. And, you know, it's 22 and a half thousand different organizations. And that's why it's so goddamn difficult Mm -hmm. sometimes to get the party started properly and why things like interoperability are Mm. an ongoing challenge for us. So that was my biggest uh, realization. I think when I first came into it, the things that I've learned are that there is a massive community uh, that want to inside and outside that want to make things better, that believe in health equality. Uh, and they will do an awful lot of things uh, inside and outside of work to try to make that a reality. And I do think, I think it's a super cool part of government uh, is, is the NHS. I think that some of the greatest innovation I've seen sits in the healthcare space. The complexity is how do we scale this stuff up? And I still think from a national perspective because of the role I had before. And uh, I guess that that will be an on, ongoing challenge. The, the other bit that I, I, I didn't realise was just how many times the debt chairs move uh, and how many compete in big central organisations are supposed to be in charge of things. So mm. NHSD, I, improvement, X gets stood up, BSA, you know, it's, it's like, mm. I think there's probably a need really to consolidate and get a clear strategy around who's actually doing what where and 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 working better with uh with with local you know ICSs i think will be a really nice way if that pulls off properly to tie local and the center together properly you're a fan of the ICS concept i guess i'm a fan of it because i haven't mm. seen it fail yet um and and i don't say yet as though i expect it to uh what i mean by that is there's some proper heavy lifting to be done so things mm. like interoperability uh, i will always bang on about but but the reality is doing some of this locally really you're eating your own dog food because you know your local area, you know your customers mm. better, you know your patients, you know your community. So, um, you know, those sitting at the centre mandating stuff doesn't feel right. There's got to be a blend of the two. And I'm hoping that's what's going to happen with uh, with ICS. I know mm. more about it recently. I've been talking to a number of people around the ICS chair roles, around some of the CEO roles, but also talking to some teams that are trying to get the party started uh, from an ICS perspective. And, you know, there's some really um, laudable plans, which I'm excited to see come to fruition. Yeah, me too. Yeah, a lot of mm. this stuff is coming from the ground up. It's sort of like cultivated it's a sort of double-edged sword isn't it the um that lack of a head at the nhs i i, I came into the, the nhs with the same sort of mentality that oh it's the nhs i'll tell you one thing that really um really shocked me was that the nhs logo is relatively new 
I can't remember how old it is, but I don't think... No, I didn't know that. I don't think it's actually been around that long. I do know there's a big charade always around the bloody colour scheme of that blue on white. And and that is like... I mean, I heard that a million times when I was doing Empower the Person. It was, it's the wrong, you know, it's the wrong shade of blue. I mean, yeah. but but as to where it came from... 1999. Wow. Yeah. And before that, I don't think there was a... I swear when I was a kid, there was an NHS logo. Maybe there was. I, I wouldn't know. Sorry, I don't either. Oh yeah, sorry, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know that. It hints at how small, how it is made up of like little shoals of fish. Like there was, there wasn't even a um, a unifying brand. And I think that logo and 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 that unifying brand gives everyone the wrong impression that there is this thing controlling it in the centre. And you go, oh, who is that? And you go, well, it's uh, NHS England. Oh, oh no, it's not. It's uh, Department of Health. Oh. Who does the tech? Oh, it's NHS Digital. Oh, but there's also this other sort of NHS X thing, which is also really very digitally focused, but it doesn't, it's not called digital. And me being green naive, I sort of like, oh, some, someone knows, someone knows the structure of this thing. But actually, I'm not sure they do. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm wrong. Early 90s brand guidelines. Note from my editor. I'm wrong. <laughs> Early nineties. That's that. Bearing in mind, though, we're on what seventy-five years, uh, seventy plus years of the NHS. Yeah. Early nineties would take that what back thirty. Hmm, worst case, thirty-two years, which means it ran for nearly half of its life without a brand or yeah. a logo. Interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. And where it come from? I think I went to a hospital in um, was it Royal Worcester, and there was on the wall there was all the sort of donors like prior to the NHS. It was all of the, you know, people who had contributed to the upkeep of the hospital. And I was like, oh yeah. You know, there was a point where this thing wasn't even the NHS. It was just people with money chucking, probably getting Downton Abbey territory. Tory donors? Oh, sorry, you didn't mean that. No, no, not Tory. (laughs) I'm teasing. I was going to try and slip it a Tory donor gag in and a quick quick reference to a lift as well before we wrapped up. (laughs) So I, I also had that idea that it was there was there was some sort of centre to it all, and there mm. and there really wasn't. But then what also comes out of that on the flip side is that there are these sort of small communities at a local level who can do something interesting and something can grow out of them. Like the almost yeah. the lack of a, a head means that any one of those sort of small places. I mean, our company came out of Oxley's, and it was really because there was a uh, like a bit of a renegade group in their learning and development department, just doing interesting and different things. And we started building software inside that trust and then it emerged out of there. So it kind of, it came, it came the other way up. And then, you know, before we knew it, it we got our products up, up and down the country. I think I see that freedom to act more in parts of the NHS that aren't central bodies. So if you're at an arm's length or an executive agency, then you don't seem to have the level of scrutiny. So a bigger example than yours, but but similar principle. So if you are not, you know, deeply with wedded to the policy teams, you have that ability to get the party started in a slightly different way. Either that or you don't have as much scrutiny on what you're doing. Could be one or two ways. If there's one thing our listeners should know, what would that be? Okay, so I think if there's one thing that your listeners should know is that we are all only here once. So we should absolutely give it our best shot every 
minute of every day. That's my overriding view. Whether it's having fun, you know, it's causing a disturbance, it's actually delivering something useful. All of me goes into that stuff. And, and I'm a big, big advocate of, of, of doing that. You know, don't don't hold back. Don't be shy. Yeah, that's that's probably my, my closing statement. That's awesome. Really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. No worries. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We really hope you enjoyed hearing how Rachel got into health tech and the future she hopes to see for the industry. For more insight about Rachel, follow her on Twitter at Rach Murph. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. 